it took me almost seven years to forgive a family member. Uh, and, and, and then let me say in true forgiveness, because I thought I had forgiven, but every time this family member's name would come up, I would go to 2000 and I wrote a letter to the family member as my own healing, but that didn't offer me true forgiveness either. Welcome to Beyond Service, where we see Jesus Christ beyond the pulpit. In today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion on running the races with Dr. Heather E. Burton. Let's jump into the conversation. As far as like the healing aspect of it, one of the things that I hear about, and this is like with just racism in particular, reparation, that's a, you know, that's a buzzword. Uh, you don't really hear too many um, politicians talk about that. Um, that's usually... They're not going to win if they say anything about reparations in a positive sense, usually. So the thing is, the other aspect of it is, um, you know, I recently went out to uh, South Africa and I got a chance to speak with some people about um, uh, the aftermath of apartheid. And, you know, one of the aspects of it they talked about was forgiveness as being one of the critical things of healing from some sort of racial dis divides, racial disparities, and so forth. So how does forgiveness play a role when either healing from racism, healing from, you know, sexism, uh, you know, these are people who are in Christ, you know, how do they deal with the forgiveness that came with that systemic oppression? Um, so that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> yes, I know. I tried to unload it as best as possible. <laughs> right. And the reason that I say that it's a loaded question, and I want to, uh, I go back to reparations too, yeah. of, of people understanding where reparations comes from is, you know, the reparations came from, uh, the Freedmen's Bureau after, well, during Reconstruction and this, I did during Reconstruction to give those who have worked on the land to till the lands and provide the prosperity that existed to slave owners, mm -hmm. their due. Right. And so once uh, you had the demise of reconstruction and Jim Crow to arise, then reparations were left at, at on, on a back door. And so the idea of 40 acres and a mule wasn't given. And so thinking about what black people did, Africa, those of African ancestry, did for America. And 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 I when we talk about forgiveness, is as Christians, we are to forgive no matter we're just to forgive. That's what yeah. the word of God instructs us is to forgive. Not to forgive because we got an apology, not to forgive because somebody came with an excuse, but to forgive. Yeah. When we're talking about and, and here's the thing where we're talking about individual versus a group or a community or a population is that as individuals, we can forgive as the church, we can forgive. But when we start creating, when we, when we have this community that needs to forgive, the community can't forgive when the changes don't happen. And yeah. so how do you forgive when things are still the same and you're still dealing with the same abuse. Because when we forgive, even though we're supposed to continue to forgive, when you think about forgiveness as Christ and how Christ forgive us, and especially if we talk about repentance, you turn and walk away and don't engage in it again. But when we're talking about racism, genderism, we can turn, but we can't walk away because it's going to be the other direction. Mm. Yeah. So, so right back into it. And so I got to run into it 
and then forgive again. But then when I turn left, I'm going to run into it again and I've got to forgive. And so it's how do you counter the everyday? I mean, you, you sound like one of the disciples because, you know, one of the disciples, it wasn't Peter that says, how many times am I supposed to forgive? And, you know, I guess Jesus jokingly said 70 times seven. seven. Times seven. Now, is the first instance of forgiveness any less effective than the quote unquote 490th instance <laughs> of forgiveness? You know, I think with forgiveness and I, I know I dealt with a situation and it, this is that individual yeah. The individual perspective where it took me almost seven years to forgive a family member. Yeah. Uh, and and then and, and let me say in true forgiveness. Yes. Because I thought I had forgiven. But every time this family member's name would come up, I would go to 2000. And I wrote a letter to the family member as my own healing. But mm. that didn't offer me true forgiveness either. Mm. And it wasn't until a few years after that, that. I actually forgave the individual right? and was able to recognize at that point it was true forgiveness because now I can call, I can be in the same room, I can be in the same setting, I can hear the name and it doesn't bother me one bit. Yeah. Now, does society bother you? Have you found yourself to, were you able to forgive society for some of the hurt or harm that it's done to you? I don't think, you know, it's hard to, I, and let me say this while I'm saying, yeah. I don't think I hold bitterness and I don't think that there was an aspect of me forgiving Okay. more so than me just accepting that this is the reality Yeah. of what society is. So it's not saying, so for me, it's not saying that I forgive you for what you did to my people yeah. or I forgive you for me it. This is what it is. This is the reality of what society is. Yeah. Uh, now, what I say is where the forgiveness has to happen is where uh, I, sh- I shared with someone earlier today after a meeting is when microaggressions are placed against me, mm-hmm. where uh, someone says, can I touch your hair? When someone questions my level of um, or education my, or intellect. And just my research based on, and I'll give an example, is that I was doing a microaggression training and I had a faculty to tell me that I need, he started by saying, I need to be careful with the language that I use. Because when I talk about marginalized and dominant in his field, dominant represents, it deals with research in the control group and the dominant group. And I had to say, but in my field, when I'm talking about marginalizing and, and dominant, I am dealing in theories of oppression, social theories of oppression, diversity and inclusion. And so your language does not transfer to my field like my language doesn't transfer to yours. So there is one aspect. But then the chair of the department came back with another what we identify as a translation microaggression and tried to explain to me what this particular person was trying to say. And so in that, that's an incident. That's an instance where there's that individual responsibility for me to forgive. Gotcha. Yeah. This conversation is takes the context of an educational, a professional environment. I would assume there's a lot of punditry in your work environment. And what I want to understand is you have godly wisdom and then you also have man's wisdom. God can take the simplest things to confound the wise. So when you're talking about various different social theories and legal theories and how do you avoid getting lost in the conversation how do you i guess recenter yourself as a child of god it's taking maturity and growth 
Yeah. It's taking maturity and growth. And, and, you know, as I tell people, um, I have matured quite a bit because yeah. of the work that I do. Yeah. Um, and I've also matured quite a bit that I don't use spaces for arguments. Okay. And so not putting myself in or trying to, let me say, cause sometimes I do, they can send me to 2000 being transparent <laughs> that I have been sent to, you know, 2000, but recognizing what I should and should not be saying based on my, my, my Christianity, yeah. because if, if I wasn't a Christian, I probably would cuss a few folks out. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and say a couple of choice words that would not be appropriate, not only for the work environment, but any environment. Sure. Just because when you're dealing with issues of race and gender, it sparks emotion. Yeah. Just like with religion, when we're talking with religion, religion sparks emotion. Yeah. And with emotion comes different facets in our behaviors. And, and I think it's really, you know, as I have matured, I have learned not to get lost in the work. Yeah. And not to get lost, uh, not lose myself in the work, uh, and also creating barriers and creating boundaries. I mean, have you ever lost yourself in the work before? And you know, what was that like? I mean, have you ever found yourself getting too caught up into your work more than God? I know for me, for my example, I've been a workaholic. Found myself working, working, even on the Sabbath, not taking time off. Maybe go to church, but I'm still thinking about work or whatever. Just trying to climb the corporate ladder or trying to climb the echelon of society. There are times where God had to chastise me and basically tell me, you're, you're putting all this effort into nothing. One example of that would be back in uh, 2008 when that whole crisis came down, the financial systems fell and all that stuff. There was a bullseye on my chest. You know, I got wiped out completely. All the noble things that I was pursuing and everything, the picket fence, the house, and, you know, all the stuff that you hear like Dave Ramsey's and all those various financial gurus talk about, you know, rich dad, mm -hmm. poor dad, blah, 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 right? And that was all taken from away from me. And I want to say it's supernaturally taken away from me. God put me in a place of humility and solitude. And I want to say quietness as well, too. So mm -hmm. when you were talking about the times where, you know, you find you've matured a lot and got yourself, found yourself caught up in a lot of, uh, I guess, overwhelmed with work or, you know. Uh, and, and let me let me yeah. rephrase that. Let me rephrase that, Chris. I don't get overwhelmed with work. OK. I get overwhelmed with emotion. Okay. Yes. So overwhelmed with emotions. I stand corrected um, because I had, yeah. I found myself over overwhelmed with uh, emotions of perhaps pride and ambition. Uh, that would be, no. That, no, no, no. That's for me. You know, this, yeah. no, no, no. You know, male ego. All right. You, you right. I get no, it. no, no. Hey, listen, I'll be real with you for real. So yeah, I'm it. admitting, you know, part of my maturity was overcoming the male ego, you know, and so forth. So God put me in a position for that. Did you find yourself, does your testimony include God having to chastise you when it comes to your professional ambitions and social ambitions? No. Okay. I, let me, let me rephrase this though. Yes. Let me go to where my chastisement comes is in my personal relationships as it relates to dating and men. And we'll save that for the, the other podcast. Yes. But that's where, that's where. That's where God works on me when yeah. it comes to work, because early on I pursued acting mm -hmm. and, and I did modeling. And so my 
faith was always a premise of who I was because I knew my survival was coming from God because now I was a starving artist. So instead of the, the ladder of reaching where it was like, you know, I got to do this work. I got to do that work. I was living paycheck to paycheck. Like, okay, where my next job going to come from. And so it was a different mentality. And then I think for me, and then I say, like, we talk about this, you know, this is my testimony is that for me, when it comes to my career and my job and my work, it's an area where I trust God because God has proved himself yeah, and proved himself in my career that I faced unemployment. I've been laid off a few years ago. I had to shut down an entire office that I was the director of because of budget cuts. And so, but in all of that, God has always financially taken care of me. Amen to that. And so, yes, I mean, it's a blessing. And I recognize that. And I think that's why that area of life is not the challenge compared to other areas of life where that's the chastisement, that's the challenge, that's the I'm not going to do, Lord, and he got to knock me down. It's those those other areas. But for work, I have never been the person that uh, work is going to take priority over family, work is going to take priority over church. I, I've just not been that person. And even ironically, someone emailed me on Friday and said, you know, we're in a hurry to get such and such completed. Can you check your emails over the weekend? And I was like, no. (laughs) I said, I don't check emails over the weekend as it relates to work. And I said, and I'm not going to ask anyone in my office to check an email over the weekend. Yeah. And they left, you know, they didn't question or try to come back and say, well, this is such and such. And I think, you know, establishing those boundaries. But now at this point in my career, also, I recognize my privilege that I have as it relates to my position privilege and my educational privilege. Yeah. And so there are many things that I can say no to because I do my job and I prove myself in terms of what work is produced. Right. And so I'm not early in my career mm-hmm. to try to prove that I know what I'm doing. Gotcha. Uh, and, and then I think that happens early on in careers, especially for young Christians is that young Christians are, are like you stated, are trying to prove themselves or trying to move ahead or trying to move up the ladder. And so then their their faith becomes sacrificed or their relationship with Christ becomes sacrificed. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, good point. Good summary, by the way, too. Thank you for sharing as well, too. I'm going to ask you another question. It has to do with reverse racism. That's something I've also heard about. I mean, slavery, that's bad, of course. Jim Crow era, bad segregation bad now there's a a counter um there there's this talk about reverse racism that critical theory promotes reverse racism uh assuming that racism exists you know that's bad for society or there'll be people who will just say all right you made your point society is changing will you please stay quiet will you please stop with all the activism will you please stop with these protests will you please stop with uh, all these talks of reconciliation on the pulpit you know, and so forth. And the thing is, you know, these are the same people that will say, oh, I have a black friend or, hey, you know what? My spouse is black Uh, or, hey, guess what? I've adopted black children. How would you address people who are clearly not racist? They're sharing a big part of their hearts with the, the black community or the brown community, you know, as a privileged member of society. 
How would you talk to them? So first, I would even even talking to them is that we need to recognize even what the data says when we're talking about racism doesn't exist. And so the question arises as when we're talking about predominantly white spaces, mm-hmm. whether that's institutions or whether that's uh, whether that's higher education institutions or corporate America. I just read an article which I'm I'm using to quote that's called the four. I think it's the four percenter, but talks about in spaces. When we talk about black people, black people don't occupy more than 4% of all of these companies and the spaces when it's a a majority white space. And so I mentioned this earlier in the podcast is that if we're focused, if we're looking at whiteness and we're looking at white privilege, Robin D'Angelo does a great job in her book, White Fragility, in dealing with understanding white people's views when it comes to racism and when it comes to other aspects. And, and, and one of the things that she says in that book is that white liberals are the worst, paraphrasing, for when we're talking about this movement and we're talking about social justice work. For the examples that you gave, I have a black, I have a black boyfriend. I got a biracial child. I got a black best friend. And they use that as a justification for why they can't be racist. Mm-hmm. I had a colleague who had biracial children that was married to a um, black woman. Mm-hmm. He was the most prejudiced individual I have ever met. Everything stemmed from a generalization. He made the statement that all preachers and pastors were crooks. Mm-hmm. He made the statement that all black people were this and that. And so, but in his justification, he couldn't be a racist because he had biracial children. And I think what happens, and then a white person shared with me, and this has been my reality check that a white person shared with me that when they are called a racist, they automatically go to KKK and hoods. And so they forget about the racist ideologies or the systemic racist policies that exist within institutions that have been shaped to create segregated spaces. For example, historically, when we look at policies that were created, and, and, you, and you look at specifically the time period of slavery, there are probably hundreds of policies that contributed to segregation, policies that still exist on some of the dockets in some of our states. And so if these policies are a reality, then it makes racism a reality. If these policies are still being practiced and these practices are being, uh, these practices are being put into play and they are covert practices that we don't realize they exist. I'll give you an example, and then I'm gonna to go to the reverse racism also, but give you an example of historically, people use words such as to create this divide with race as black people weren't smart. Black people didn't have any any type of brain power. They were not humans. They were not, uh, they were animals. They couldn't be controlled. And the only way they can be controlled was by whips and chains. And so instead of using that language today, what we use is there are no black people in this field. There are no capable black people within this. We aren't graduating black people. They are coming out with lower ACT, SAT scores. They are not achieving within the classroom. They are not being successful. So instead of using the whips and chains, we're using aspects of education. We're saying that black women can handle pain within the emergency room. And so we're not treating them when they say something is wrong with me. We're not providing them with the the, the treatment that they need within the emergency room. When we're talking about the housing system, instead of it being 
out point blank discrimination, what we do is we uh, increase mortgage rates or we increase interest rates. There was a story in California where a black family's appraisal on a house was much lower than when they had their white friend to pretend that it was her house. Yeah, I saw that story. Yeah. And so, but when we talk about reverse racism, reverse racism makes me think of the concept, and that's where I was going with Robin D'Angelo, of white fragility, is that reverse racism becomes an act or word to use as a defense because of not accepting the reality that racism exists and that we're fighting against hundreds of years of racist policies and racist ideologies and racist behaviors. Mm-hmm. Then what we say is, or what you have people say, <laughs> is that it's reverse racism yeah. because they're being challenged and called on their whiteness or their white privilege. All right. So here's a spontaneous question. Um, uh-huh. BLM, Black Lives Matter, is that a black face organization? Let me first clarify. What do you mean by black face of an organization? Uh, meaning that you have other special interest groups that are using the BLM movement to ultimately satisfy their agenda. And so, they're using a black face as as a basically a Trojan horse. So other interest groups using Black Lives Matter as their symbol to fight against. In other words, they're using the they're using the the progress of BLM to ultimately facilitate their special purposes, their special needs, or their special interests. I mean, you started off with BLM, and then of course Blue Lives Matter, then Asian Lives Matter, oh, okay. then LG, you know, Black Trans Lives Matter. Uh, you know, and you just see how all of a sudden that it, there's a dilution to the BLM now to all of a sudden represent all these other groups. And that's where I say, oh, this is just a black face organization. Just to be transparent as well too. Uh, me personally, I, I never really fully was on board with uh, the Black Lives Matter, uh, the organization after I read the manifesto and it didn't put black men in a good light at all from my understanding of reading the manifesto on their website. So that's just me being transparent with you. Yeah. And I think what we have to realize, too, is the the, the creation of Black Lives Matter and where it stood was in support of black women yeah. and black trans women specifically. Okay. And so and so if you're looking at Black Lives Matter and that's where I was trying to get my language to that, if you're looking sure. at Black Lives Matter, it was to support black women and black trans women. And so in this space, it supported the mothers of victims that have been shot by police brutality. OK. And so understanding that but when we talk about i'm t- let me just say this being transparent i'm territorial with the black community okay please well, explain anything, please explain that yeah territorial with I the black community we, i think anything that we create should stay ours so that's just what i feel is that when you talk about black lives matter so and i'll give you an example is that when we talk about black lives matter and that being the face of the black community i think we have to understand black lives matter is the face of black lives and the abuse, brutality, and murder that occurs to the Black body and Black lives. That's where we have to stand. When other people take on Blue Lives Matter and this, they've missed the whole historical connotation of why Black Lives Matter or the the hashtag that started Black Lives Matter exists. It exists because in America, Black lives did not matter. The black body did not matter. The black body could be mistreated. The black body could be abused. The black body could be destroyed. And no one blinked an eye. Prime example is let's take Emmett Till. If we take Emmett Till and the black body that was destroyed because of an alleged act. Yeah. 
that was later admitted to not being truth. Yeah. We all knew it wasn't truth. If you were in the black community, you knew it wasn't truth. Of course. But, but there was alleged, and, and like I said, later being admitted, the protection of the black body. Blue lives have been protected. Blue lives have been protected historical because blue lives were created to destroy. If we talk about the formation of the order of security, police fighting that institution. But when we talk about where the the idea of policing comes historically for the black body, mm-hmm. it was a destruction for the black body. Yeah. But when I talk about being territorial, it's my it's one of these ideas of philosophical concepts that I always throw out. We talk about assimilation, accommodation, when we talk about people, cultural appropriation, and 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 taking from the black community. For yeah. example, with I was going because I, I know you want to talk. So with Black Lives, <laughs> last year with George Floyd, I was riding through a neighborhood. I was bike riding. And I kept seeing all of this on the sidewalks, people with yards writing Black Lives Matter. And I just wanted to knock on someone's door and say, why? Tell me why you wrote that. Yeah. And what does it mean to you yeah. to say Black Lives Matter? Now, I think we're I think you're you're starting to at least it sounds like we're on the same page a little bit now uh, because I see it as a way. That's why I see it as like a blackface organization. It's like a newer, more acceptable blackface where 20, 30 years ago you have a blackface because if you go to a Halloween party and you put on a blackface, it's to, you know, hey, I'm not ashamed to be black. You know, that type of thing. Or back in the, you know, 40s, 50s, where you have those old whatever, whatever, people put on the black face and the, the really, really big pink lips or whatever, you yeah. know, because they wanted to get people, black people Mister into, into the mainstreams or into the movie theater or the, the Nickelodeons or whatever they called them back there and stuff like that. So perhaps there was, uh, there was a sense of honorable disruption to society of injecting more and more black people, even though it's not in the most attractive fashion right and so that's why i'm seeing blm as a blackface organization is where people could kind of show support they could still be covert it, you know what i mean you know they, they could go ahead and black lives matter uh, as, until it starts to impact them i mean not to date this podcast but you have an espn reporter a white female a black woman gets her job and all of a sudden she's just like what's up with that you know, now, of course, everybody who she works with apparently is like, oh, yeah, she's very much not racist at all and even defended her after the point. But yet she still said that because it started to mess with her money. It started to mess with yeah. her. Mammoth. It started to mess with her mammoth. Her, her mammoth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's that's, the, that's what happens is that white people. You know what? I'm sorry to interrupt again. Is it just white people? Because, you know, I do have some white listeners who might be attacked by that. Is it just white people that are racist? Well, it depends on how you define racism. And so if you're defining racism from a power and who holds the power within this country, then yes, it's white people. And then what about from the lived experience and from a narrative perspective? Do you think in a cultural perspective, would you say black people have more power? 
in that regards in terms mm -hmm. of because the thing is you were talking about your territorial uh about black people isn't that territory kind of expanding in terms of maybe not in terms of finance or whatever but in terms of cultural impact you know the hip-hop movements where, where for a while a lot of club you know i mean but, you got you have people who who want bigger body parts because of black women you know what i mean but so, what does that do for them that doesn't do anything for them economically or educationally so okay. it may be expanding culturally, but when you talk about where power lies and our power systems, when yeah. we're talking about capitalism, when we're talking about education, a white woman getting a butt, big butt doesn't do anything within the system of, uh, it doesn't, well, I should say it doesn't give black, that, I shouldn't, let me rephrase that. It doesn't give black people power within the system because a white woman gets a big butt or gets injected lips or right. decides to wear cornrows. It doesn't, because here's the thing. If I wear cornrows, which is my natural, my natural, you know, our natural culture, our natural natural hair, then I get looked at in a white environment. And, and uh, let me say this, in a predominantly white environment, which okay. is why we had to put forth the Crown Act. This is why Black women are dealing with the Crown Act right now. Hey, it's do me a favor. Can you just tell us quickly what the Crown Act is? So the Crown Act is uh, an act fighting fighting against behaviors within spaces where black women can wear their hair the way that it grows out of their head yeah. <laughs> and the way that uh, God intended for their hair to be because there have been many black women have who have been released from jobs, many black women who have not gotten jobs, black girls who have been suspended from school because of having curly hair that was a distraction for the classroom. And so the Crown Act is saying you can't discriminate based on a black woman's hair. Right, right. And I think there was and some so, discrimination with uh with swim caps or something like that. Uh, yeah. Black black uh black athlete uh black athletic swimmers. Yes, yeah. and women. And, and, and you know, I think about just the what was that the other week where the track runner had had been suspended because she tested for oh Shakari uh, Richardson. Yeah. Yes, had been had tested for um uh, marijuana. THC, yeah. The the thing was, I'm talking about the newscaster that said, "Well, she must." be guilty of using it because look at her hair and look at her nails. Ouch. And and that and 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 steroid use contributes to hair growth and nail growth. And yeah. someone made the comment like who's gonna tell sus that that's a weave? Yeah. Um and so, and so it's very <laughs> and I and, and I'm not saying that all white people, but what I will tell your listeners on this call is that I'm I'm using white people as a term for yeah. whiteness and white privilege when I use white people is right. that in that aspects and in that space. Yeah. But what I always tell people is one of the best people who talks about the idea of whiteness, white privilege is Robin D'Angelo and white fragility mm -hmm. and, and dealing in that. And if you don't want to do that, an old school person is Tim Wise mm -hmm. that, that, that deals in that. And so when we're talking about racism, when we're talking about the idea of reverse racism is that reverse racism becomes a go-to as a defense mechanism. Because no matter where we go within any space, unless it's the black church on Sunday morning, do black people hold the majority and the power or an HBCU? But when I talk about territorial, uh, it's just like with the, you know, you know, seeing black, seeing people of all sorts with Black Lives Matter on. My question always was, okay, this summer after George Floyd, everyone, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, everyone is wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. 
and, and everyone, I'm saying every demographic is wearing a Black Lives Matter bracelet. But what are you doing behind the scenes? Yeah. What also are you doing now that COVID is over and you're back in? Not just that COVID is over because COVID is far from over. Yeah. But now that we're back in our spaces of work or we're back in our spaces of school, what are you doing in those systems to support the black life and the black body? Yeah. Are you hiring that the numbers are beyond, as that article said, the four percent? Speaking of uh, what are people doing, what would you say you're doing as a minister of the gospel? Now, you have some ministries as well, too. You want to just talk a little bit about the focus of some of those ministry outlets? Um, so I have my own nonprofit organization, yeah. which is called Crimson Heights Ministries, mm-hmm. and it's geared towards the holistic development of women. Mm-hmm. As well as I am uh, the national coordinator for our intergenerational women's ministry. One one point right there. You talk about the holistic nature of women or the holistic approach. Can you repeat that part again? I had a question. Holistic approach. Yeah. You. Yeah. You. You. you the the, uh, the yeah. nonprofit focuses yeah. on the holistic development of women. Holistic development of women. All right. Is that biblical or is that new age? You know, I'm just. It is know. biblical. Okay. It is, biblical. is it also new age? Because that might be a questionable buzzword. I don't think it's, I don't think holistic is new age. I think it might be a buzzword, just like anti-racism in terms of a buzzword, but it's not a new concept. Okay. Yeah. Please continue. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that real quick. Yeah. Holistic is not a new concept because when we look at Christ and what Christ did biblically, Christ provided salvation, but he also healed everybody in another perspective. And that perspective may have been physical. That perspective may have been mental. That perspective may have been, you know, economical. But when we're looking at the holistic, it's looking at here, let's look at your spirituality first. Yeah. Then let's look at the other things that are going to make you able to not only empower yourself, but to empower the people that are around you and empower the people that are coming behind you. Yeah. Now, first of all, you strike me as a very social person. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And Um, because I have to be. No, no, no. That That's a wonderful quality, by the way. Uh, no, I'm, I love being by myself, though. Most people don't realize that. Oh, but no. I love being by uh, no, I'm an introvert as well, too, <laughs> by all means. I'm a, actually, I'm a I'm an ambivert. But yeah, I'm an introvert. But yeah, if I'm in a crowd or whatever, I can seem extrovert. <laughs> mm-hmm. I promise you, if I'm extroverted for a good amount of time, I will sleep well that night. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Anyhow, yep. that's a, that, yeah, enough about me on that one though. But when it comes to like the, the, the ministry output, uh, for me, I find myself thriving the best, or at least I find my calling where I get to talk to people perhaps in small groups or one-on-ones and stuff of that nature. Uh, and as far as like the nature of your ministry, is it like uh, speaking tours or I don't know, or is it more of an intimate settings or uh, mm-hmm. when it comes time for like speaking with people, I don't want you to put everyone's business out there, but when you talk about the holistic uh, development of women, what are some of the common obstacles that women uh, bring to the ministry? So when we're talking about my nonprofit, and I must say, I have to say that my nonprofit is separated from my writing. My work with my nonprofit, uh, what we have done, it's been in existence for 12 years. And what we do is every year we do a women's workshop. Okay. And so we do a women's workshop and then proceeds from that women's workshop, as well as other funds that we raise, go to scholarships for high school students. Okay. So we've given over $12,000 away in high in, in scholarship dollars. Awesome. And so that's what I mean by like holistic is that we're also looking at how do we develop young people educationally to be able to go to school by providing them with the financial means 
as well as through these workshops, we do training. And so every year the training may focus on, it may be an economic training. It may be a mental health training. It may be, uh, and it's always, the training is always rooted and grounded in spiritual. And so a a biblical verse that goes with it or um, the presentation of what's been done. And so it's usually a group setting. I never present at the workshops. So for my nonprofit, I I only present because someone's gotten sick. Mm -hmm. It doesn't show. But uh, I find, and that's the other thing, is that I I pray about women in the community who are experts in certain areas that are Christian, uh, like someone that I have used as a counselor, that's a Christian counselor and has her degrees in counseling and therapy. You know, someone else is a nurse, it's a, a, a minister, but she's a nurse. And so bringing people in like that, that are experts within their field, but they're also experts in ministry uh, or they're part of ministry to be able to do the workshops and then the speaking. But I don't, um, I I don't put myself on the platform. Now I was supposed to do the 10th anniversary, but it was COVID and we didn't have the 10th anniversary in person. Um, So we did a virtual and I participated on that panel, but that was a request of the person who does our <laughs> programming. Um, All right. So it sounds like you have more of an executive oversight, I guess, of the, the nonprofit going forward. So how has the ministry kept up with that? Um, By focusing on what's relevant for the day. Okay. Um, so, what, what, you know what, specifically, instance, what would you say was not nearly as relevant maybe 12 years ago, but that is more relevant today? Um, You know, that's hard for me to say because I think when we're dealing with women, 12 years ago, the same things that were relevant then are the same things that are relevant now. Okay. All right. What would you yeah. say are some of the top things then? Um, economic development for women. Yeah. Uh, and really understanding how to economically develop as well as physical and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for women, specifically Black women, historically, they have always carried the weight of the world on their shoulders. And they still carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. And so that's what I mean by not that change, but finding ways in which they can navigate and deal with physical and mental health. This concludes another episode of Beyond Sermons, where we seek Jesus Christ beyond the pulpit. If you were blessed by this episode, consider going to beyondsermons.com, where you can subscribe on the platform of your choice. Take care and be blessed to be a blessing.